You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. We're going to read together the first 11 verses of John chapter 12, and then we will pray together. John 12, beginning of verse 1. Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they made him a supper there, and Martha was serving, but Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Mary then took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples who was intending to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to poor people? Now he said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. Therefore Jesus said, Let her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. The large crowd of the Jews then learned that he was there, and they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. But the chief priests planned to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and were believing in him. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are grateful to you for your word, and it is open now before us, and it is our heart's desire that you would use your word in the power of your spirit to sanctify us by the truth. Impress upon our hearts the glory of Christ and the, the magnificent nature of his name and his person, that we may love him, and that we may see him for who he is. Edify and equip your people today. Encourage those who are discouraged. And may Jesus Christ be lifted up among us, that he would be glorified in and through us. That is what we pray in his name. Amen. Well, we are starting today John chapter 12. And uh, there, are, there are thematic similarities between the 11th chapter of John and the 12th chapter of John which is why, if you remember and you were here for the beginning of John chapter 11, when we introduced John 11, we actually took John 11 and 12 together because there is a theme that sort of uh, comes all the way through both chapters. And so we're kind of treating them as one unit. And one of the predominant themes of these two chapters is the theme of death. In John chapter 11, the, it starts off with the death of Lazarus, and it's concerned with his death and his resurrection. And then John ends with the leaders plotting the death of Jesus. And then in John chapter 12, you have it starting off with Jesus being anointed for burial. And then in the middle of the chapter of chapter 12, Jesus explains the nature and some of the purpose behind his death and uh, talks about his death at some length. So that is sort of the thing that connects these two chapters is what is it that caused the Jewish leaders to really seek to put him to death? And what are the consequences of that death and what are the implications of that death? And that's what chapter 12 covers. Chapter 12 is really the, the last chapter that gives us any insight or, or look at the public ministry of Jesus. Beginning in chapter 13, everything starts to go behind the closed door, as it were, and we are brought into the inner room with the disciples. Chapter 12 ends, when chapter 12 ends, it is the last of anything that Jesus said or did publicly that is recorded in John's Gospel. And the 12th chapter has three key or main events. It starts off with the anointing of Jesus by Mary for his burial. Then there is the triumphal entry of Jesus riding into Jerusalem on the back of the colt. And then there are the Greeks who seek after Jesus. And that's kind of a key or significant event that the other 
three Gospels don't mention, but John does. And then that Greeks seeking after Jesus, that becomes a platform for which Jesus is going to explain the nature of his death and his death. And then chapter 12 ends with Jesus basically summing up the first 12 chapters of John's Gospel. In verses 44 through verse 50 of John's Gospel, or chapter 12, in those verses, nearly every sentence and every verse is something that Jesus had said publicly on a prior occasion, either to his disciples or to the religious leaders or to the crowds in general. So he is sort of summing up, John is, in the last part of chapter 12, summing up all of the public ministry of Jesus with those commands to obey and the implications of belief and the implications of unbelief. And then beginning in chapter 13, we go behind the curtain. No more public ministry, no more public speeches, no more public discourses. It is Jesus with his disciples on the night before he is, uh, the night he was betrayed and the night before his crucifixion. So we're starting today looking at verses 1 through 11 of chapter 12. And this is kind of an interesting episode in the Gospels. And it's interesting not just because of what is here in John in the first 11 verses, but it, it is interesting because of what Matthew and Mark also record about this incident. There are, there is an, an, an account of an anointing of a woman, sorry, anointing of Jesus by a woman in each of the four Gospels. And I'm going to give you the four references if you're taking notes. These are mentioned in Matthew chapter 26, verses 6 through 13, Mark 14, 3 through 9, Luke chapter 7, verses 36 to 50, and then here in John 12, verses 1 through 11. So those are the four places where an anointing of Jesus by a woman is mentioned. Now we read the Gospel of Luke's account, Luke chapter 7, at the beginning of the service. What makes it all of this interesting is the differences between the accounts as each Gospel writer recorded them. There are some very striking differences that it's just it wouldn't be fair for me to simply pass over them and not talk about the difference between how each writer records this event. Because skeptics will use this passage to say, see, the Gospel writers have it wrong. Matthew and Mark don't agree with John. John doesn't agree with Luke. Luke is entirely out on a wing. And so what do we do with all of these differences? So I'm going to kind of work through this a little bit, and this is going to require some thinking. For some of you, this is going to thrill you beyond words. For others of you, this is going to bore you to tears. So if you are the type that gets bored to tears and you're looking for a good opportunity to doze off, now would be the time. Set your phone uh, to wake you up in about 10 minutes. You can join us again, and we'll be right back in John chapter 12. So there are differences between all four of these accounts. Now, Luke, and I'm, going to, I'm going to give you some of the differences, just so you know ahead of time where we're going. Luke is radically different than Matthew, Mark, and John. I'm going to talk about why that is in just a second. So, listen to how these things are different. In, they're different in terms of when this supposedly happened. Matthew, Mark, and John all record an anointing late in the ministry of Jesus during the final week, during His Passion Week. In the Gospel of Luke, it takes place toward the beginning of His ministry while He is up in Galilee. Luke seems to place an anointing in Galilee, not down in Bethany in Judea. Matthew, Mark, and John all put the anointing in Bethany of Judea, which is in the south. Galilee is in the north. Luke says his anointing happened in the home of a Pharisee. Matthew, Mark, and John, well, sorry, Matthew and Mark say that the anointing happened in the home of Simon the leper. And if we read Matthew and Mark, you would see both of them mention that this happened in the home of Simon the leper. John doesn't tell us whose house it was at, but... It is interesting that Martha is doing some serving in the house. We're going to deal with that in just a second. Martha is one who is doing the serving of the meal. So that seems to imply that this was at Martha's house. You see the differences, how they're kind of piling up? 
It is also different how each author, gospel author describes the person who did the anointing. Matthew and Mark don't mention any name or say who it is. John says it was Mary. Luke says it was a woman and that it was a sinner. And it's obviously some sort of a notorious sinner, likely a former prostitute who has been forgiven much because you remember the Pharisee was indignant and he says, if you knew who this woman was and what type of a sinner she is, you would not even allow her to touch you. So that's Luke's woman. Now all of those differences kind of begin to add up. Uh, another one is at the end of Matthew, Mark, and John's account, this anointing by the woman of Jesus uh, initiates a discussion as to the why the, how this perf- expensive perfume could have been sold and the money given to the poor. But in Luke's account, the anointing of the woman ends with the discussion about who he who has been forgiven much loves much. He who has been forgiven little loves little. Now, do you see how radically different Luke is than Matthew, Mark, and John? For that reason, we would suppose that Luke's account, what Luke is describing, is not covered by Matthew, Mark, or John. Luke is actually describing an anointing of Jesus at the home of Simon the leper that happened in Galilee at the beginning of his ministry by a prostitute early on in the ministry. Matthew, Mark, and John's anointing happened, the one that they describe happened at the end of Jesus' ministry. And they say they're two very similar events, both of which, uh, the, both of the, sorry, both of those events, the early anointing and the, the later anointing, they share certain things in common, like an alabaster vial, a costly perfume, it was a woman, it was his feet, she anointed them, she wiped it with her hair, there's a discussion afterwards. There are a lot of similarities, but that doesn't mean that Luke has got it all wrong or that Matthew, Mark, and John have it all wrong. We are right to suppose that there are two separate events. It's much like the the cleansing of the temple in John chapter 2. Matthew and Mark mentioned that, and I think it's Luke, no, Matthew and Mark, well, whichever one of those gospel writers mentioned at the end of Jesus' ministry, John puts a cleansing at the beginning of his ministry. There's nothing that says that it happened, it didn't happen more than once. And likely we would be justified in assuming that it did happen more than once. John, I would assume that every time Jesus stepped into the temple and saw what was going on, he would cleanse it. If if we found out in heaven that Jesus cleansed the temple 15 times in three years, that wouldn't surprise me one bit. So we ought to think that something as theologically significant and as spiritually significant as Jesus being anointed for his burial, that there might be an incident at the beginning and an incident at the end. So we put Luke, he's describing an early episode. So now let's deal with Matthew, Mark, and John. Because even between Matthew, Mark, and John, there are significant differences between the accounts that they give. For instance, let me give you a couple of differences just between those three accounts. In Matthew and Mark, they record that the head of Jesus was anointed. John records that the feet of Jesus was anointed. Matthew and Mark, in Matthew and Mark, Jesus says what this woman has done will be spoken of wherever the gospel is preached, but there's no mention of that in John's gospel. In Matthew, it says that the disciples were indignant. In Mark, it says some were indignant. He doesn't necessarily specify the disciples. In John, John indicates that it was Judas who was indignant in verse 4 and following. In John's gospel, Mary and Martha and Lazarus are there, and Mary is named as the one who anointed Jesus. In Matthew and Mark, the woman who anointed Jesus is not named, and neither Matthew nor Mark name Mary, Martha, or Lazarus as being there. So those are some significant differences between those accounts. Now, that has led some to speculate and suggest that Matthew, Mark, and John are not are not tell, tell, talking about the same anointing. That Matthew and Mark are describing one anointing, and John is describing yet another anointing. So that would put how many? Three. One that Luke describes, one that Matthew and Mark describe, and one that John describes. Is it possible that there were three? I think that that's possible. I don't lean towards that. 
Uh, J.C. Ryle, J.B. Lightfoot, and Matthew Henry all say that there were three anointings. One by one that Luke talks about, one that Matthew and Mark describe, and one that John describes, and that John's is unique. I tend to put Matthew and Mark and John all describing the same anointing because I think that even though there are differences in how they describe it, those differences are not irreconcilable. Those differences can actually be harmonized quite neatly. So as we go through this, I'm going to try and show you how those differences can be harmonized and kind of all brought together. The differences between the gospel writers gives us the opportunity to talk about uh, how we read New Testament documents and how we read the gospels and what our expectation of the writers are. So we're going to take just a moment here. If you're just now waking up, go back to sleep. Give me another five minutes. Here's how we deal with supposed contradictions in Scripture. Because as you read through the gospel accounts, you're going to notice that each author will sometimes describe something, but it doesn't sound like the other person's description of it. Matthew, when and Matthew and Mark are both describing the same incident, there are differences in their descriptions. What do we do with this? Do we assume that they are contradicting one another and that Scripture is an error? Or do we seek to read the accounts in such a way that they would harmonize and that we would kind of get the gist from both people's perspective what is going on? Let me give you a couple of pointers. First, we always give the benefit of the doubt to the author. We always give the benefit of the doubt to the author. Whenever we read any author, whether it's the New Testament or any other author, and we notice that they are describing something, we always give the benefit of the doubt. We never, we never say, well, it's obviously just a contradiction. He doesn't know what they're talking about. We always ask ourselves, this author obviously had a reason for describing this event the way that he did and from the perspective that he did and chose these details for a reason. What might his reason be? So we give the benefit of the doubt to the author. And when we notice that things don't seem to mesh up at first glance, we don't assume that just because two people describe something from a different vantage point that they are in error or that they are wrong or that they are lazy or that they are incompetent. We don't assume that with any document. Unless you're reading the Daily Bee, then you might assume that, but with good reason. But with the Gospels, we don't make that assumption. We don't assume that just because they got a few facts wrong that they are incompetent. We don't actually even assume that they got a few facts wrong. We assume that each gospel writer is telling us the truth, and he is accurately representing exactly what happens, but he is describing it from a bit of a different vantage point of from his eyewitness account. Second, we always keep in mind that there are three different perspectives between Matthew, Mark, and John. Three different perspectives. You have three different men all of whom were eyewitnesses. Matthew is an eyewitness. John is an eyewitness. Mark is writing on behalf of Peter, who was an eyewitness. So Peter is his eyewitness source. You have three different eyewitness accounts of this one incident. And we never assume that any one of these gospel writers gives us a full accounting of everything that happened in that event. In fact, all three gospel writers together do not give us a full accounting of what happened in that event. All three of them are giving us a very very sparse accounting of what happened in that event. Let me give you an illustration. I want you to, here's a mental exercise for you. I want you to imagine that you are present at this meal, and it is an evening meal, and this meal goes on for a couple of hours, maybe three or four hours. And it is a busy time, and there are a lot of people there. The disciples are there. There's all kinds of people that are coming. They are going. And over the course of this whole evening, as the meal is being served and people are eating, there are all kinds of discussions that are taking place. Not only with Jesus, but even around Jesus, people are discussing these things. And as this evening unfolds, this woman does this profoundly significant, theologically significant thing of anointing his body for burial. And that creates in itself quite a discussion. And then you have some of the disciples who are indignant and some others who are indignant as well who are not his disciples. And, and this creates quite a discussion. And, and, and Jesus himself, 
he identifies the significance of this event by saying what this woman has done will be said, will be described everywhere that the gospel is preached. And it is. Aren't we discussing it today? We're discussing it today. So what she has done is being described everywhere that the gospel is preached. That signifies its, that identifies its significance. Then Jesus speaks of this being a foreshadowing or something that's preparing him for burial. So that has to be the discussion of his death there. And then as all of this is unfolding, you have one of his disciples. And in fact, this event, this event becomes the catalyst for something that is unthinkable. That one of Jesus' closest friends, one of his own disciples, would betray him. And there is discussion about this. There is indignation over this. There is a rebuke of the woman. There is a rebuke to those who rebuke the woman for the rebuke of the woman. And all of this happens and transpires over the course of the whole evening. Now, here's, here's your assignment. I want you to capture that evening and the theological significance of that evening in 175 words. Can you do that? Can you describe any meal you have ever had in 175 words? But that's what John does, and John's is the longest of the three accounts. Capture the meaning and the significance of that event in 175 words. And if you give, if I gave three of you that assignment, and we got back three reports and we read them, you know what we would assume? That they were describing three entirely different meals because they would all be radically different. But every last one of those accounts would be true. That is how we treat the gospel records. I am convinced that if you and I were a fly on the wall inside of that room, and we watched this unfold, and we had Matthew and Mark and John in front of us. It would be small writing because we're flies, remember. But if we had those three writings in front of us, we would watch this whole evening unfold, and we would say, oh, that's what, uh, that's it. That's why Matthew said that, and that's why Mark said that. They're not contradicting each other. Both of them are right. They're describing the same thing from three different vantage points. So as we work through this, I'm going to bring in Matthew and Mark's accounts. We're going to see how it kind of harmonizes with John and how all three of these gospel writers give us sort of a harmony of a full understanding, shouldn't say a full, a fuller understanding of what happened that evening. So I hope your alarms just went off. Wake up. We're going to dive now into John chapter 12, beginning at verse 1. And we are going to see here as we, as we work through these first 11 verses, there are five actions and reactions by five different parties here. We're going to look at the service of Martha in verses 1 and 2, the sacrifice of Mary in verse 3, the selfishness of Judas in verses 4 through 8, the shallow seeking of the crowd in verse 9, and then the scheming of the leaders in verses 10 and 11. I'm borrowing that uh, outline with some slight modifications from John MacArthur who broke it up that way, and I said, I can't do better than that, which goes without saying. So just in case you read that outline somewhere else, like in your MacArthur Study Bible, you know that I got it from him with some slight modifications. So today we're going to look at the service of of Martha and then the sacrifice of Mary. Beginning in verse 1, Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Now this is, by the way, is another uh, a little detail, a little seeming contradiction between Matthew, Mark, and John. If you read Matthew and Mark, both of them retell this story, but it seems as if they are describing this two days before the Passover. John describes this incident six days before the Passover. Now, how do you resolve that? That's a bit more significant, isn't it? That's what that's one of the things that has led some people to conclude that Matthew and John are describing one anointing two days before the Passover. John is describing another anointing six days before the Passover. But we have to keep in mind, Matthew and Mark, in fact, no gospel writer, necessarily wrote everything down chronologically. Matthew and Mark tended more than John to group their material into themes or uh, sort of ideas. And that seems to be what they are doing in Mark 14 and Matthew 26. 
they are mentioning the death of Jesus, but then they record something that happened earlier and kind of put it into the narrative as an example of this truth or this reality. So we would say that this anointing happened six days before the Passover. Jesus came to Bethany. This would place him coming into Bethany on the Friday before Good Friday or the Friday before his death, six days before his death or six days before the Passover would begin. He came to Bethany, which he mentions here, and it reminds us of what happened in John chapter 11 with the resurrection of Lazarus. In fact, that was the only thing that made Bethany a notable town. It was very indescript, very a small town. Nothing significant really stood out except Lazarus was raised in Bethany, and that's where Mary and Martha and Lazarus lived. So he came to Bethany, and this, by the way, is where Matthew and Mark both say that Jesus came, that this anointing happened in Bethany. So those three agree on the location. He came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Now, why does John mention that again? It's not like the resurrection of Lazarus happened in chapter 2 or 3, and we've got to be reminded, who's Lazarus again? And what happened with Lazarus? It was just a few verses ago that he was discussing Lazarus. Why does John mention, remember Lazarus was there, and Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead? I think John is trying to remind us that not only had Lazarus been raised from the dead, but he was still alive. So we're now a couple of months later. And we are to think of the resurrection of Lazarus as being something that was very permanent. Lazarus was raised from the dead, and a couple months later, he was still alive again. So this wasn't a resuscitation. This wasn't he just kind of came to for a bit and a couple days later he died again. Lazarus was raised and he was still alive a couple of months later when Jesus came back to Bethany. So it reminds us of the permanence of what Jesus did with Lazarus. Though Lazarus did die again. Don't forget that. He did die again, but obviously not immediately within a couple of months after his resurrection. So he came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. And so they made him a supper there. And Martha was serving, but Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. So when he came to Bethany, they made him a supper, and this is likely the evening meal. The word there can mean can refer to any meal of the day. It can refer to breakfast, lunch, or dinner. But almost exclusively in the Gospels, that word, when used of a meal, refers to the evening meal. And the, all of the other times that it's used in John's Gospel, it refers to the Last Supper, which was an evening meal. So we would assume that this was an evening meal. J.B. Lightfoot, in his commentary on the Gospel of John, says that the, this this final Friday meal before Passover, a week before Passover, was was a very liberal, very lavish, very sumptuous meal. So this was a, this is not a, a few guys sitting around eating a few uh, small minnows and, a, and a, a loaf of bread. This is a sumptuous meal. This is a feast that is put on. And Matthew and Mark say that this took place in the home of Simeon, uh, Simon, sorry, not Simeon, Simon the leper. Now you'll notice that John doesn't refer to whose house it was in. John doesn't mention that. Mark and Matthew mention Simon the leper. This is another detail that has caused some to say, well, see, John must be in Mary and Martha and Lazarus' house because Martha was serving. She wouldn't be serving in Simon's house. The Matthew and Mark account is in the house of Simon, who was also in Bethany. How do you reconcile that? Some people have suggested that with such a crowd, with such a crowd, you got the 12 disciples, you got others who are there, you got Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, and whoever was with their family, and other people. Later on in chapter 12, we find out that large crowds were coming to him at the same time. So there's... Probably this was a large meal, an enormous meal. Maybe Simon's house was the only house in town big enough to host such a meal. In which case, Martha, being the servant-hearted person that she would, would find no problem if Simon is a, is a family friend going into or a neighbor, going into his house and helping serve the meal in his house. So just because John doesn't mention whose house it is, there's no reason to assume that John's gospel records a different incident. Also, and this is, uh, this is speculation, sanctified speculation, some people have suggested that Simon the leper was the father of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. Because it would be his house, but Mary and Martha and Lazarus would be acting as if it was their own. 
So Matthew and Mark would be giving us that specific detail that the home actually belonged to Simon the leper. But in John, we see Martha acting as if it is her own home, serving guests, Lazarus reclining at the meal as if he is there and belongs there because this would have, in fact, have been their home. Simon the leper would not have been a leper at the time that the, the, the meal took place. They would not have had a meal like this in the home of a man who was still a leper. So we assume that Jesus would have healed Simon at some point. But there are, Simon was a common name, like Simon Peter, uh, Simon the leper. This was sort of a tag that he, uh, he got nailed with, and it just it stuck. He was Simon who was once a leper. So not Simon Peter, not any other Simon, but Simon the leper. And everybody would have, who read this would have known that it was Simon the leper who, who Simon the leper was and that it was his house that they had this feast in. So that's where it is at. Now look at Martha's service in verse 2. They made him a supper there, and Martha was serving, but Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table. Now, the fact that Martha is serving, serving is kind of indicative of what we see in Martha every time she's mentioned in the New Testament. You might remember John, uh, Luke chapter 10 where Martha is busy serving and Mary is kind of the pensive, thoughtful, reflective, worshipful one who sits at the feet of Jesus and doesn't do anything and Martha is busying herself. And then Martha's mistake was not that she was busy, but that she complained about it to Jesus to reprove Mary. And she got upset with Mary, saying, I'm doing all the work. Mary's not doing anything. You should say something to her and get her up and get her working and expect me to do all the dishes for you and your 12 disciples. And Jesus had to reprove her for that, for her not for her busyness, but for her complaining about the busyness and thinking somehow that what Mary was doing was not adequate enough. And then in John chapter 11, when Jesus came toward Bethany before the resurrection of Lazarus, it was Martha who went out to meet him and Mary who sat at home on the floor weeping with the rest of the Jews who were there. So this is this, these two women, these sisters, this is the distinction that we see with these two women every time that they are mentioned. Martha is the busy, the type A, the, the working, the serving one. Mary is sort of the thoughtful, reflexive, um, worshipful, uh, pensive one who's just more quiet and Martha more outgoing. If you've ever had, if you have more than one child, then you know how different your children can be, right? How radically different. And so we have the same thing going on here with Mary and Martha. These two people are, these two women are on polar opposites of each other. And this is what we see reflective of Martha's uh, posture elsewhere in Scripture. She is a servant. Oftentimes, Martha kind of gets the bad rap because what she does is seen under the shadow, as it were, of what Mary does. Now, Mary does this magnificent thing. She pours out a costly vial of perfume and bows down in worship to wash the feet of Jesus with her hair. And sometimes we just picture Martha as being, well, she was off busy. She didn't have time to worship. But we ought not to think that Martha's act of service, her serving, is any less commendable or less honorable or less worshipful than what Mary does. These two women are both worshiping and honoring Christ, but in two different ways. We ought not to think that busyness is not in itself an act of service to the Lord. Martha was busy. She could not stand the thought of Jesus being in her home and her not waiting a table for him. So that's her act of worship. That is her act of service. What she is doing, even in her busyness and her activity, is in itself an act of worship to the Lord. There's nothing wrong with being busy for the Lord. There's nothing wrong with being active for the Lord. Now, if you do that to the exclusion of thoughtful, contemplative worship and, and sitting down and taking some time to pause from that, then that becomes imbalanced. But if all you ever do is sit around and think and worship and you don't do anything to serve the Lord, then, then you're imbalanced on the other end of the spectrum too. So what Martha does in her service is just as much an act of adoration and an expression of love for Christ as anything that Mary did. As anything that Mary did. What is interesting to note is that 
from all that we can discern about this family, this act of waiting a table by Martha is in itself something that was humbling and undignified and was an act of, an act for her of sacrifice. Uh, Mary and Martha, if we understand the, the dynamics of their family right, Mary and Martha and Lazarus probably came from a rather affluent family. And we saw this back in John chapter 11. Uh, where else do you get the type of perfume that she had access to if you didn't have some sort of affluence? They, they did. They had, they had money. They had means. Mary and Martha were probably the type of people who had servants of their own. And she could have bid somebody else to serve the table of Christ, but instead she humbled herself and she served the Lord herself. This was a woman who had just had a, a servant's heart and she was active and busy in serving Christ. Um, Matthew Henry in his commentary says, it is better to be a waiter at Christ's table than a guest at the table of a prince. It is better to do the most menial of tasks for the honor of Christ than to be honored with the highest of honors among men. Do you think that way? Do you realize that? It is better to clean a toilet for the glory of God than to be given honor as the guest of honor at the White House. That's how you ought to view servant to Christ. Now, some of you would say, I, I wouldn't even want to go to the White House. And regardless of what president is there, it would be better to clean a toilet for the glory of Christ than to be the guest of honor of Ronald Reagan or George Washington in the White House. And this is how, this is what Mary viewed. It is better to sit and to serve Christ and his table than to be honored among men. So that is the service of Martha. I said Mary. That's the service of Martha. You keep the name straight if I don't. you got to interpret and put in the right name. The second, let's look at the sacrifice of Mary. Verse 3. Mary then took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard. Now we may ask, why does Matthew and Mark not name Mary as the one? Why do they just say a woman and not name Mary? I think it's because Mary was a common name. And if Matthew and Mark had to name Mary, they would have to explain which Mary. This was the Mary who was the sister of Martha and Lazarus. And then you'd have to say, well, who was Lazarus? And then Martha, or Mar- Matthew and Mark might have to explain who Lazarus is. John has already laid all the groundwork for us. He's told us who Mary, Martha, and Lazarus are. So he can identify who this woman is, that this is the Mary who is the sister of Martha and the sister of Lazarus whom Jesus raised from the dead. Mary then took a pound of very costly perfume, a pure nard, and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance, fragrance of the perfume. That last sentence, that last detail, the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume, that is the type of detail that we might expect from an eyewitness. Is it not? Or a nose witness, I guess it would be. Uh, John remembered that scent. And he is saying, this scent, when she broke that alabaster vial of expensive perfume and poured it out like she did, this filled the house. It overwhelmed the smell of the guests. It overwhelmed the smell of the food. It overwhelmed the smell of everything. And you could smell it. And you know how powerful our sense of smell is? Have you ever noticed that you can smell something and it will take you back to something in your childhood or something from a long time ago? Just the scent of it is enough to bring you back and to recall all kinds of images and thoughts and feelings in your head. I would bet that there is not a person that was at this feast who could ever smell pure nard again and not picture this scene. Because that everybody in the house knew what had happened. Everybody smelled it. This perfume filled the house. Now, there's nothing unique about what Mary did as far as striking anybody there as being something that was never done. This was something that in kind of a fashion was done quite commonly. 
Uh, in that day, people traveled. They had sandals. They didn't have shoes like we have, so their feet got dirty. Their feet were exposed to the heat, to the cold, to the dry, arid environment. And so it was very common for the, the feet of people to be afflicted with all types of, of dryness and uh, cracking and dirt. And it was just, that was common. And if you went to the house of somebody, oftentimes the most menial and lowly of slaves would wash the feet of the guests, moving one from another and clean their feet as kind of an act of service and dignifying them. So there's, there's nothing about the act itself which is, is unique in their culture, though it strikes us as kind of odd, does it not? I mean, how many times have you been to a meal where somebody washed your feet? Me? Never. Now, unless you have lived in another culture, spent some time there, or you got some weird friends, it probably hasn't happened to you either. But in their culture, there was nothing unique about this. But there are two things about this particular incident that mark it as definitely unique. The first is the cost of the cost of the value of what Mary used. Look what Luke, or sorry, look what John says. She took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard. A pound of very costly perfume of pure nard. Now a pound, if John is using the Roman measurements, which he likely is, would equate to about 12 ounces. So think of maybe a pint jar of pure nard. What is pure nard? Whatever it was, it was valuable. We're not exactly sure what exactly it was, but it was very valuable. Uh, Matthew and Mark both say that it was worth 300 denarii. Judas, in verse 4, agrees with that assessment. This could have been sold for 300 denarii. How much is 300 denarii? It was a year's wages. This is a vial of perfume that cost a year's wages. I don't have anything in my house that is worth a year's wages. Nothing. Especially something that smells. Nothing that smells in my house that is worth a year's wages. Unless it's my wife's perfume, and it's because I give her a dollar a month of allowance, whether she needs it or not. Her perfume might be worth a month of her, a year's worth of her wages, but certainly not a, month, a year's worth of anybody else's wages. What was it that gave it its value? What gave it its value was its purity, and that's the two words translated pure nard are, are somewhat difficult to nail down exactly what they mean. We're not sure what the nard was. And we're not sure what the word pure necessarily meant because there's a couple of things that that word could be derived from. Most likely, it has the essence of being something that is pure in its essence. It was undiluted, unpolluted in any way. This was the purest form of this scented mixture, whatever it was. It was some sort of perfume. John MacArthur in his commentary, in his Bible study notes actually, says that this was a pressed oil from a uh, from the, how does he say it? Uh, from a plant that was native to India. And so it might be the fact that it had to travel such a long distance and it took so much of that plant to make this pure mixture that made it worth its value. She took a pound or 12 ounces of this very expensive perfume and Mark and Matthew noticed that note that she had it in an alabaster vial, which was an expensive vial, expensive perfume in an expensive container, and she dumped this out and poured it out and she left nothing that she did not offer. The container itself was broken, and the pure nard, the pure perfume, was poured out. A year's wages worth of perfume was emptied out on Christ. That is indicative of her estimation of his value and his worth. And so what she is doing is she is offering to him and pouring out over him something of unspeakable worth and value. Unspeakable worth and value. What if, and this is not true, but what if God measured our love for Him by the value of what we give to Him? I am thankful that He does not measure our love that way. But compare and contrast Mary's sacrifice with that which passes as sacrifice among most evangelicals today. 
where God typically gets our leftovers. Our leftover time, our leftover energy, our leftover money, our leftover possession. We give that to Him. And then, like the Israelites of Malachi's day, who offered to God the the the, the lame and the crippled and the bleeding and the, the diseased and the sick and the dying sheep, we run around and we spend a tremendous amount of effort convincing ourselves that God is pleased with such sacrifices. Not for Mary. No, she could have found other ways to do something similar to this that wouldn't have cost her as much. Surely she could have scavenged around through Bethany somewhere. There was some vial of perfume that was far less expensive than this that she could have used. She could have taken a cup of olive oil and poured a little bit of the pure nard into that to scent the olive oil and then used it. She could have put just a few drops of it into the water, which would have scented the water, and she could have used that to, to, to clean the feet of Jesus. But she didn't do that. She poured out something that was of almost irreplaceable value because that is how she... That is how she viewed Christ. In fact, the disciples, it was so lavish, this was so over the top, that in the eyes of all who saw it, they were indignant. Matthew and Mark both note that the disciples were indignant, and that some who were there were indignant, who were not disciples. And Judas gets all up in arms, and everybody is appalled by what she has done. Who would dare to pour out something of such value to him? Why would you do that? This is a waste to give him something of that of that value. This is, this is over the top, it is lavish, it is completely unmerited. It is completely uncalled for, at least in the eyes of all there who were there who saw it. Have I ever offered to Christ anything that in the eyes of those who see it might think that is uncalled for? That's a searching question to ask yourself. Have I ever valued Him like this? The fact that even the disciples were indignant about this is indicative of the fact that Mary at this point has a higher value of Christ than even His disciples did. As they were coming into Jerusalem, they have, they have heard Jesus' testimony of, of His own deity. They have heard Him claim deity. They have seen the miracles that He has done. They have witnessed Him. They have seen His life. They have seen His character. By this point in John's Gospel, the disciples have got to be convinced that Jesus is either God or He is a madman. I think that they are convinced that He is God. So they know who it is that He has claimed to be. They know who it is that He has proved Himself to be. And yet when she poured out this, which to them was a lavish display, they were indignant. Well, that tells me that Mary had a higher view of Christ than the disciples did. Or they would have said, is that all you got to offer him? A year's wages of perfume? Does a year's wages worth of perfume really do justice to the nature of this person that she is worshiping? It doesn't at all. So that is one of the things that makes this entirely unique. Not just that she was washing his feet, but the the sheer lavish value of what it is that she poured out on him. Now, Matthew and Mark say that she anointed his head. John says she anointed his feet. Is that a contradiction? Is that a contradiction? It's not. Now listen carefully. If Matthew and Mark had said she anointed his head and not his feet, and John had said she anointed his feet and not his head, That would be a contradiction. But none of them say that. Matthew and Mark note that his head was anointed. John notes that his feet were anointed. Is there a way of reconciling those two? Could it be both? Might we not picture that this pint-sized vial of alabaster ointment and pure perfume, if she had dumped it all over his head, it might have been inappropriate. But we might see that over the course of this meal, she might have poured some anointing over his head and poured it even across his body and dumped the rest of it out at his feet. And then bowed down at his feet and used her own hair to wipe his feet and to clean off all of the excess that she had poured out at his feet. So why then would Matthew and Mark note that it was his head and John focus on his feet? 
Once again, this goes back to what we talked about earlier. You have three different authors who are all viewing this incident from different perspectives. Matthew, when Matthew writes his gospel, he is focused on presenting the kingship of Jesus, that he is king. So what would catch Matthew's attention at this scene? It would be watching Jesus have oil poured over his head and an anointing just like they did kings. And Matthew would mention that she anointed his head. This is indicative of his fulfillment of the king. This is a kingly anointing. But John is writing his gospel to show us that Jesus Christ is God and he is worthy of worship. So what catches John's attention at the feast? Not the head anointing. What catches John's attention at the feast is this woman anointing his feet and bowing down in worship and washing her his feet with her hair. That is an act of adoration and worship that is only deserving, that only God would deserve. So what catches John's attention is that which demonstrates his deity. What catches Matthew's attention is that which demonstrates his kingship. Both of them are describing the same event. I believe that at this event, his head was anointed, that perfume was poured down his body, and the rest of it was poured out at his feet as an act of worship. And each gospel writer is viewing it from a little bit of a different perspective. Like I say, if we were a fly on the wall with our little tiny manuscript of Matthew, Mark, and John, we would see this event and we would be able to watch it unfold and say, oh, that's why Matthew wrote that and Mark wrote that and John wrote that and they're all telling exactly what happened here. But each of them leaving in and accounting for certain details and some of them skipping over certain details that they didn't think were important. The second thing that made this unique, it wasn't the washing itself, it was the cost of the vial of perfume that was offered. And the second thing that made this unique was the fact that she used her hair She used her hair to wipe his feet. Now, this is unique to the culture of that day because in public back then, women did not put their hair down. They kept their hair up. They kept their hair back. She would have needed to put her hair down, which was almost an act of immodesty. It just is nothing inherently immoral with it, but in that culture, it was kind of what prostitutes did. It was kind of what uh, immodest women did. And she's not doing this to be immodest, but what she is demonstrating is, in a sense, her lack of care for what anybody around her might have thought while she was doing this. The woman is humbling herself at the feet of Christ and wiping off those dirty, chapped, and dry feet with her own hair and doing it as an act of love and worship and adoration to him after she has poured out a year's wages value of perfume on his feet and his head. She is doing this in worship and humility before him. This woman does not care what Simon the leper thinks or any of the disciples think or what Judas thinks. She put down her hair and she used it as a towel. It's just, it's just this, this reckless abandon of worship and adoration that she offers to Christ. That is what made this unique. So we've looked at Martha's service and Mary's sacrifice. And we have seen the sacrifice and the worship of two women, both offered in different ways, which were more reflective of their personalities. And now we are to take the actions of Mary and Martha and contrast that with the next character to enter the scene, Judas. Iscariot. And the difference between Judas and Mary and Martha could not be more striking. We'll save Judas and the crowds and the leaders for next time we are together in the Gospel of John. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Our Father, we are are so grateful to you for a Savior who is worth far more than we could ever offer to him. We know how little it is that we give to you and how little it is that we offer to you. We could never, if we had a thousand tongues to sing, adequately express our great Redeemer's praise. And we could never, if we had a million vials of such costly perfume, give to you what you are truly worth. We thank you that you do not measure our love or our devotion, and you do not give out heaven to us on the basis of how we express our love to you, but that it is all by your grace. We thank you for a Savior who condescended and gave up so much for our sake. We thank you that 
through his sacrifice and through his love for us, that he can be glorified and you can be glorified. We pray that you would increase our love for Christ, our desire to be like him, that you would sanctify us by the truth, and that you would in the hearts of your people be honored and glorified as we give to you our worship and our praise and offer lives to you that are worth, that, that can be used by you and by your grace to extend your kingdom and your word far and wide. That is our desire. May you be glorified in and through your church, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.